The bell is rung, and another edition of the Icon Showdown podcast is live for the first time. My co-host tonight is the amazing Josh Kirkland from Colorado. How are we doing today, Josh? I'm good. I'm good. I'm not amazing, but I'm good. I think you're pretty amazing. I think you should take it back. You should big up yourself as much as possible. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Icon Showdown podcast, essentially we pit creative works against one another in a given year. And based on a certain criteria, we determine which should be considered the most iconic of that year instead of the Academy or the Hollywood Press Association that will tell you who's the best of the year without telling you why we're going to tell you why. That's why we're here today. So we will be tackling the year 1991 in mainstream horror, pitting popcorn against people under the stairs. Josh, had you seen any either of these movies prior? Um, no. No, not till this week. Neither had I, which I think is pretty interesting. In 1991, there's a considerable amount of sequels um, for some well-known properties, but there's very few original horror films from that year. So I was kind of excited to get to actually look at two that made the most money comparatively in terms of the original and uh, see how they stacked up against one another. So how it works here is we're going to actually take a look at each um, in terms of its criteria, bopping back and forth. So... Uh, we're going to start with Popcorn, because Popcorn was released in February of 1991. People Under the Stairs was released that November. So, considering that Popcorn came out first, let's take a look first at the antagonist, or antagonists, perhaps, in this case. What did you think of them? Um, I, I didn't see it coming, you know, the big reveal. Uh, it's kind of caught me off guard, you know? I'm uh, totally with you. I didn't see it coming either. Uh, essentially, let's tell people what's what we're talking about here, because there was the red herring killer, who we are assuming is the father of the final girl, of our main lead, Maggie. Even that. Leonard Gates. Right. Even his, you know, even his identity as her father isn't revealed until, you know, late into the film. That's a good point. Um, do you think it would have been a better film if they didn't do the switch and it turned out that he was still alive? And it was him. Leonard and then Toby, we find out, it's a, it's a student that goes to school with her whose family was killed when Leonard Gates does this ridiculous, um, uh, like, essentially live snuff show when his movie that he made is kind of dejected by audiences. So he decides to kind of get back at audience by killing his own family in front of people. He tries to kill his daughter, but she gets away. Um, so now she's kind of being haunted by his memory, both in his dreams, her dreams, rather, as well as reality. Um, and then we find out that there was a kid in that audience where a fire ultimately happened who was burned horribly. And that's Toby. What did you think about the burns? Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it was the the makeup was more like. There's a lot of metal on his face, you know, you don't really think of uh, a burned victim of us having their face reconstructed with metal you know like little right. pieces metal huge almost. staples right yeah staples probably what it was i'm assuming he was burned so bad that the integrity of his skull was so weak that those staples had to be there in order to keep his skull in place um because certainly around this time we got freddie too and he's also a burn victim i found it interesting the way that this movie depicted a burn victim versus versus freddie did you think the metal added or took away from kind of the, the fright factor I don't. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, I like that when you know a movie does its own thing. You know, and they, they have yeah. their own style of makeup, and you know it's different from anything else. You know, if if he looked like Freddie, it probably would have been you know not as well received in general. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. And also, unlike Freddy, you could say that this guy is a little loonier. He's a little crazier, and, like, his head's not together. Like, Freddy is more sadistic. This guy is more, like, affected and ruined by what happened to him. And he's more of a, a victim versus Freddy was sinister prior to getting burned. Yeah, he does seem like kind of a space case. You know, he's all over the place. Uh, doesn't know what his next move is. Uh, seemed, seemed like when he was talking, when he was... You know, when we didn't know his identity and he was making his moves, it seemed like he knew what he was doing. But once you get to kind of get to know him, get to see him as the villain, you know, monologuing, you know, it's yes, clear that there's kinda... a considerable amount of expo at the end of the film. Yeah. What do you think about his motivations? What would you say is his main motivation in ultimately trying to recreate what Leonard Gates failed doing uh, years prior? Uh you know, uh, commit murder, but do it on, you know, on a grand stage, you know, that's why he, you know, did his, uh, little stage play at the end, you know, played to the audience, you know, it's all. Yeah. I think you're right. I think of revenge and also the lack of attention he got, even when he was in disguise as Toby going to school, like a normal person, he was kind of a nerd, even when people couldn't see what was under there. You know what I mean? He's a film geek and we'll get into the ensemble here in a second, but I don't think he's given the sort of attention that he wanted. And he demands it there at the end by, uh, essentially taking control of that theater for the horror thon in 1991. Yeah. Um, okay, what about his voice? Do you think Toby, as a performer, that, that voice, his character, was scary? We're talking about his kind of lunacy. Do you think it was effective? Were you menaced by his voice? Uh, his, like, his his real voice, the Toby voice? Yeah. Uh, it, I, I didn't find it menacing. It was, it was it's a little goofy, you know, a little goofy. I agree. More than anything. But you bring up a good point in that he was able to mimic the voices of pretty much everyone that he was disguised as throughout. He played multiple characters um, within the film crew. So when he did, I think, I'm sorry. Uh, when he did the voice of Tina, did, it didn't even sound like a female. <laughs> Tina was the exception. <laughs> Tina was the exception, and that's when I really thought it was the dad because it was so half-hearted. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> moving her arms around like uh, it reminded me of the Mr. Burns scene where they're moving his dead body when he's like uh, on the puppet strings. Um, yeah. Okay, what about originality? What about originality of this antagonist in Popcorn? Toby essentially is his name, who's ripping off Leonard Gates. He's imbued by the spirit of Leonard, not literally, but metaphorically speaking. I'll give it. You know, I'll give it. I'll give it points for originality. You know, I mean, mostly because you know, as I mentioned before. Didn't see it coming. That's something I always appreciate, you know, in a suspense movie or a horror movie. Um, you know, surprises, you know, they go a long way with me. Yeah, I thought it was pretty original, too. And I like to think of them as there's two villains here. You have Leonard Gates, who I personally find is a more compelling villain than Toby, because you have this idea of a failed director wanting revenge on his audience um, to get more notability, or because he wasn't given the notability that he believed he deserved. I'm not sure. I know you're not a big Batman fan, but there's a character in Batman called Clayface, who is a kind of a actor who was huge. And then as he starts to not be able to get roles and not get the attention that he wants, he essentially becomes this clay monster that's able to be look like anyone similar to what Toby ends up doing too. 
Um, so in terms of originality, I do feel like there was a lot of threads from the Batman's Clayface involved. Um, and I also really like the, the notion of vanity and pride being a motivator to get revenge. It's kind of akin to what we see going on in the White House right now. This, this is not a political podcast at all. But I do feel like when somebody believes that they're the best or, or perfect and others suggest otherwise um, in, a, in a fragile mind and a narcissistic mind, oftentimes as directors can be, um, that's going to be that much more more troubling. Um, and then in the case of Toby, I feel like we talked about he's damaged goods. I don't think it's super original, um, but the fact that his entire family was lost, he's kind of like if Batman himself went bad, right? He loses his family. and Batman loses his mom and dad outside of a theater. Uh, Toby loses them inside the theater. Um, and then the gimmicks, his adoration of film, I found interesting to have a film geek as a killer was fresh for that time. We'll see it again in Scream later, but it, this was years prior to Scream, four years prior to Scream. So I got to give it to uh, Popcorn for really kind of going down this avenue first. Yeah, yeah, agreed. You know, and if we want to get into it, uh, you know, did Game of Thrones steal their uh, faceless men? Good call. Stealing yeah, you're face. absolutely right. That's a good that, point. That is very similar. Um, what's that character's name? Can you remember uh, Game of Thrones? Uh, Jockin Hagar. Okay, there you go. There you go. Um, and I, I also thought uh, Toby is fleshed out a little bit when we get to look at his apartment. He's kind of given a more stereotypical, obsessive serial killer vibe when you see all the stuff on the wall and he's got pictures of, of his victims. Um, before we talk about what we each rated... Uh, Toby slash Leonard Gates is a combo as out of four pentagrams. Um, let's talk about the big bads in People Under the Stairs because there's kind of a lot. Um, in, in a way, you know, it does boil down to, I think, just two. But I do think it's just two. Of the two, Mommy and Daddy, which one do you think was the bigger bad? Um, it's got to be Mommy because Mommy is the only one that was, you know, presented as scary like the movie didn't even take daddy seriously like all his scenes were like comedy it, it, it was like uh you know that's that's where all the humorous scenes were were daddy scenes that's a good point um yeah i definitely think daddy was less effective than a mommy and mommy kind of cow or, or or actually made him bow down to her a lot of the times until the end when things were getting a little shady and he actually hits mommy for the first time where that was like the only role reversal where it seemed like he was kind of actually embracing his own masculinity uh, compared to her. She was kind of ruling him the whole time. And we do learn that mommy and daddy are brother and sister too. That's something uh, that's pretty significant. What are their motivations? Uh, they're just sick in the head. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I definitely think they're deranged. I had trouble uh, maybe just seeing what they can get away with. You know, they like regularly interact with the police and like, you know, just to flaunt like how, how much they can get away with. And like their whole house is set up, you know, as uh, to, to be able to do all that crazy stuff and have all the crazy stuff that's in it. But also, you know, you can have guests over. You know, they that have... house is amazing. I can't wait to talk about that when we get to the settings <laughs> part. But the house itself, you could argue, is a big bad because it enables them to do the horrific things that they do do um, right. in secret. 
Um, I, I kind of went a little bit deeper that with the motivations. I do agree with you that they're deranged. Um, they want to see what they. I like that they want to see what they can get away with. I think is interesting, and I think it's uh, poignant to the racial stuff that we'll talk about later that's going on there. But I think the mo- basic motivations. They want to hoard money. They want to control children. They want power. I think they're repressing their sexual desires for one another. I think they want to get on one another as brother and sister in a very weird way, and the only way to distract them from doing so is by overtly like using religion to kind of distract them from their own carnality for one another and uh, using religion and propriety, essentially properness as a means of distracting themselves from their own sick desires beyond because they got all the money in the world. Right. And now they got this army of people that they've just used living in the basement. Um, I think that's all kind of undercover stuff for their sick, incestuous desires. I don't know. Did you see that at all? I, I kind of assumed that they were giving in to those desires. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess they didn't have anything on screen, you know, that showed that they were, you know, physically intimate. But I, I assumed it was there. I think it's not there. And here's my reason why, because he was lusting after Alice. To me, they definitely more than implied that he would have done horrible things to Alice, given the opportunity. And I almost feel like she was into Alice, too. So this is their one daughter who they haven't put in the basement yet. She's been following their rules and has been a good little girl compared to all the boys that have failed them and are now either living in the walls or stuck in this dungeon basement. Um what about the aesthetic of mommy and daddy? What did you think about the way they looked? Um, I, I, I don't know. For some reason, I don't know. There, there's something about mommy that I just, I really liked, you know, just her whole demeanor and like just the whole look of her uh, daddy. Not so much, you know, especially, yeah. uh, especially the, uh, the gimp suit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's part of why I go to the motivation stuff because that is so overtly sexual in nature. It's not like he's going to be uh, protecting himself from bullets in this leather clad suit that covers his entire body when he's holding a shotgun. I think we might be talking about like a baby dicked guy here, right? That ultimately is going out and trying to get his jolly in the shotgun being the phallus metaphor. We can get more into that later, but you're right. It was super weird when suddenly daddy is in the gimp suit. A la Pulp Fiction, you know. <laughs> and I loved Mommy's look as well. I think she was like straight out of the 50s with the red hair all done up. It was like big, but it also looked tight at the same time. Like she was uptight, but like a big version of uptight. Um, she kind of had that stereotypical housewife going on, but there was a strange sexuality to her, similar to how Daddy ultimately is kind of boring and conservative looking when he's not in the gimp soup. And then when he gets in the gimp costume, what the hell is he doing? Because to me, he's, he's definitely getting some sort of sexual pleasure out of hunting down these kids. You know, I don't know. That's kind of what I saw. What about their voices? Um... I don't know. I mean, they 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 fit the characters. I think. I know? think mommy's voice was more affecting as a whole, especially yeah. when she's yelling at Alice toward the end, calling her a whore or whatever she's doing. Uh, it's so grating. She's really scary. I mean, we're talking about the ultimate witch here. You know. Yeah. Um, Originality-wise, what did you think? I mean, it, it was different, different from anything. Um, I think so. Scenario I've seen characters in. 
different. I mean, certainly in Texas Chainsaw, you kind of have an incestuous family, but I've never seen anything that focuses on a brother and sister that can't acknowledge their lust for one another. So they're repressed in that sense. And they use the children as the conduits to displace those abominable feelings. Uh, I think that is pretty original. Yeah. I also found them captivating. Granted, I found Mommy much more captivating, but when they were both on screen, I couldn't look away. I mean, they scared me. If I dealt with those people in real life, these are the type of people that scare me. There's nothing supernatural about them. I mean, in real life, I got to be honest, uh, you know, from from a, like a horror movie standpoint, like I, I wasn't scared. It seemed They seemed almost like Disney villains, you know, where you know they're okay. bad. And they have like a lot of bad qualities and you know they're up to bad things. But like I really wasn't scared of them, you know. It didn't kind of it didn't really evoke any kind of fear. That's fair. I guess um, I don't know. I'm I'm very scared of overtly religious people, people that try to convert you essentially to their belief systems. And granted, I'll, I'll acknowledge there is a cartoonish quality to them, a campy quality to them. Um, but I I feel like they're they're, they're inner inner sexual repression, and then using Christianity to kind of combat that that is scary to me and it's something i've actually seen in real life sort of thing so that's that's the reason i give them a little extra credit let's uh let's really quick here uh, out of four pentagrams what would you give uh popcorns Leonard and toby um i i wrote three on my, on my i list. wrote three too i wrote three too i think it's a solid three what about mommy and daddy i also wrote three as did I. We got two threes. It's like they're so good, but something is still missing, though. Something is missing. Um, let's talk about the ensemble of popcorn, uh, specifically character developments. Do you feel like you got a good sense of this whole film crew and then uh, the peripheral antagonists? Yeah, I, I would. I wouldn't say character development was you mm -hmm. know a suit, but I did love the characters. I did love the ensemble. You know, I I, I love the whole atmosphere. You know, of the whole thing. Um, just um was there too many characters would it have been more effective if they got rid of two people in the film club um not necessarily or i don't know maybe, maybe more murders would it would have uh would have been the better thing to do they got rid of you know got rid of them you know not yeah I think I think you're onto something there because ultimately Cheryl survives and she's a peripheral character, as does Joni, right? So two of the girls uh, die, and then ultimately you have I think every guy in the film club dies, doesn't he? Um, including the teacher, teacher Toby and uh, I... Leon, the the uh, mad scientist guy dies too, as far as I could tell. That one was uh, a little more ambiguous about whether or not that smoke was going to kill him. Yeah, he definitely died. I'm yeah, pretty... so all the guys are dead. I do like that they did that in terms of the ensemble because usually the girls are all the ones that get slaughtered with the exception of the final girl. But here we have three girls surviving. Uh, maybe that's what's striking me as off, you know, because all the girls survived. Did you believe any of the bonds between them, any of the friendships? What, did you, what do you think about those? Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they, they did seem like a close-knit group, you know. They, they seemed like they had a just, you know, like the kind of relationship you have with the people you hang out with at film club with. I agree. I definitely think that there was like an eclectic cast and it wasn't just all nerds. You had people like Cheryl who was kind of representing something different. She was uh, super sassy, I guess you could put it. And the way that her and Joni interacted, I thought was interesting too, where she's like watching out for Joni's weight and she's like, okay, don't put the butter on the popcorn. Don't, or, don't eat the Milky Way rather. And then Joni <laughs> comes back with her. I'm not putting butter on the popcorn and I'm having a Diet Coke. So it all balances out. I like their relationship. 
Um, Joni and Leon too. It's kind of weird because Joni was like the the friend to most of them. She seemed almost like the uh, the hub of friendship in a weird way. Uh, the girl who played the nurse in it. Um, did you buy into the fact that Tina was doing her teacher? I, I was kind of confused at that part because she said yeah, it. Was I. I thought she said it's starting to peel off, like she knew about the mask, but. Then she ended up dead, like right after that. So I, I, I was confused at that part. Yeah, no, I think she thought it was the teacher uh, that he was pretending to be, that Toby was pretending to be. And then when she kisses him, like she's sucking off the mask. I don't think she was conscious. I think she th- actually thought that was the teacher, who she was having an affair with. Right. Um, at that point, I, I, I figured it out. But just her commenting on, you know, his face peeling off, I, I didn't know what she what she thought that was actually what was actually happening there. I think she said something about like your lip is peeling like it was chap sort of thing. I don't think she saw it as something that was mask like. I think she actually bought into it being like a human skin problem. Oh, because that's, that's what I got. Yeah, because then they showed like his face, like his cheek was like peeling like right after that. So I thought that's what she was talking about. It was backstage. It was dark. She probably couldn't see that well. You got to give you got to give Tina the benefit of the doubt. I wanted to see more of Tina. I thought she was fun. And we just didn't get enough of her. Yeah, she was all right. Uh, by, played by Freddie Marie Simpson, I believe. Um, in terms of acting ability as a whole, was there any like uh, really weak link for you? Uh, not really. Um, what about the boyfriend? And what about the thug that takes the boyfriend's secondary girlfriend? Well, I mean that. Okay, yeah, I mean. It's such a minor role. I, I didn't think it was bad, but his voice was kind of high pitched for a guy who's supposed to be all intimidating. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. When he's out in the lobby, yeah, he sounds a little, a little too high in terms of his voice. Um, I really enjoyed the lead. Uh, we'll talk more about her in surviving characters, but she seemed like this combination of Phoebe Cates meets Courtney Cox and a little pepper of Winona in there. There was something about her. I didn't think she was the best actress ever, specifically in scenes like in the projector room where. I felt like she just had lines that didn't give her the ability to to act right, or she had to be a little hammy about it. But I, I right. thought she, when I did a little research on this, she was considered a odd choice for casting because they claim she has kind of a husky voice. And she was a recast, too. Initially, the director who directed the uh, three movies within the movies, Mosquito, the Electroshock guy, and then the Stench, he was supposed to direct the entirety of it, but he got replaced when he got replaced, so did the girl who was initially supposed to play Maggie with this one. So you have a secondary director who's actually the one responsible for all the current day fodder. And there's another director who did uh, the previous movies, the movies within the movies, which I kind of found kind of interesting, especially considering <laughs> the theme of the movie about a director who wasn't good enough. Right. Yeah. No, I did. I did like those movies within the movie. But uh, back to Maggie, I, I had no problem with the actress whatsoever. Uh, the character seemed like she seemed like she figured stuff out uh, a little too easily uh, and wasn't like as emotionally affected as maybe she should have been. Okay. In that circumstance. Like yeah, she- I could see that. Here's why I want to argue 
I mean, that's kind of treading over the surviving character stuff I want to talk about with her, but she's so obsessed with film that I feel like she does look at stuff more analytically and she's not actually living her life and she's looking at all the people in her life as characters sort of thing and the events that happen to her as potential scenes that she could write. So in terms of that, I do think you're right. It might have been uh, more satisfactory for us as an audience to see her be more affected, but considering her obsession with writing and characters, you can argue kind of made sense. Yeah, bit. maybe, maybe, maybe you know, maybe she's just what? coping in a, in a different way than most people would. Yeah, I think she's a little disaffected in in a in a way I've seen writers and people in performance do. Um, especially, it doesn't appear that she has a father figure. I don't. It doesn't seem like the aunt ever married a dude. The mother from ET, right? Right. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe she struggles with Mark in that relationship because of that. I don't know. We can't get too psychological into these characters, but there's something there. Um, I felt also like once Toby outs himself at the end in terms of the ensemble, his pain and suffering are decently acted. I think Toby does a better job once he's like out of the closet as the killer versus when he was Toby, Toby, you know, before he was the mad Toby. I felt like he was a little too goofy. And granted, we t did talk about his goofiness when he does become evil, but at least it made sense then. He doesn't have a skull that's connected. I, I, I almost feel the opposite. I kind of liked him. You know, I, I liked him at the beginning. You know, I was like, oh, they, that guy's, uh, I don't know. I, he just seemed really likable, you know, and kind of, uh, he's like the Chandler of the group. I see what you're saying. No, I, I get that. I do get that. Um, what about the diversity? In terms of horror films, early '90s, do we get a, enough diversity here? Eh, I, I don't know. Uh, didn't even didn't even cross my mind. I you know I wasn't I wasn't concerned about. It was nice to see a character um, that was disabled. Bud was in the wheelchair, right? It was nice to see that. Um, frankly, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, for me is is like my favorite or the most scary horror film to me, and that's partly because there was a character in it that was um, immobile and gets hammered in the head, and it just seemed like he wasn't able to fight in the way others were. And granted, we'll talk about the kills. It wasn't my favorite kill with the uh, Bud in the wheelchair, but uh, I, I was happy that he, there, that was represented in it. And then of course. Cheryl was a person of color as well, and I felt like she had a very robust character compared to maybe Joni or even yeah. Tina. I feel like next to Maggie, Cheryl was probably my favorite of the female characters. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, she, I don't know. It seems like she had more speaking lines than like Joni did. And that's interesting because let's talk about the ensemble of people under the stairs because you pointed this out to me last night. That same actress is in it. What was her name? Oh, uh, Kelly Joe Minter. There you go. Kelly Joe Minter, not only in Popcorn in 1991, but later that year she's in another iconic horror film, People Under the Stairs, as the sister to Fool, whose uh, full name was Poindexter. Is that a name? I just remember that from Toe Jam and Earl. I didn't know that Poindexter was a name. I've heard it as in, like an insult, like, nice going, Poindexter. Right, as what did I. If you look it up on IMDb, his first name is Poindexter. So that no, was a little remember, confusing to me. I remember that from the movie, yeah. They, like at the beginning. Um, so as a whole, the ensemble of people under the stairs, considering the secondary characters, what did you think as, as a whole? 
as a whole, well, I mean, it really, you know, the uh, the other characters who entered the house, you know, Marcellus Wallace and the other guy. <laughs> Ving Rhames, also known as Leroy. His character's name was Leroy. <laughs> um, they just died really quick. They, like, really early. So it was pretty much just Fool on his own most of the time. That's now, true. Fool always had, like, a sidekick. First started off with uh, Leroy, played by Bing Rames, and then he had Roach for a while, the son that was smart enough to get out of the basement and live in the walls, even though his tongue had been ripped off. Um, Then you could argue that at the end, Alice is his sidekick. Fool always has somebody working with him, somebody that keeps him him cooking, because he almost met his death multiple times throughout. Um, I personally think that the family of Fool was really interesting. I felt like the, the little little we saw of each of them was decent enough where I really got a sense of their characters and they didn't feel stock to me. Did, did you feel that way? Like, especially the grandpa? No, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, it was very, very limited, you know, their their on-screen time. But no, it was, it was good. I, I did uh, like the... Another character that was super limited was Spencer. Um... And I really like the relationship between Leroy and Spencer. You have an interracial friendship here happening, not something that you see often in films. And their friendship was so strong that Ving Rhames then is willing to put himself at risk. Granted, he wants the gold coins, but to go see what the hell happened to his buddy Spencer. I mean, that's part of it, but he was also saying, I think that's the reason he went in, is he was like suspecting Spencer of uh, keeping the coins for him. Oh, okay. So but, you don't buy into their friendship as much? They didn't trust each other? I mean, he definitely didn't in that moment. He wanted to go get those coins out of Spencer's hands, you know, because he was certain that Spencer was taking them for himself. That that could be true. That could be true. I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, in pretty terms much, of food... Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, he pretty much says it outright right before they go in. Oh, he's like, he's not going to just get away with it? I see. I missed that. I must have missed that. I was I was hoping for the best, and apparently uh, I blocked out the reality of their dynamic. Um, what about Fool and Alice? Because we have a couple preteens here, right? Um, yeah. And their relationship was uh, insinuated as sexualized from daddy only, as far as I know. But really, it wasn't. There was no moment between the two where it felt creepy for me. Did it for you? Not at all. Not at all. Like I, I totally I liked their bond. I thought it was it was decent and I don't know. Like he asks her specifically, You've never seen a brother before? And she didn't <laughs> even understand the context of that. So I felt that was an interesting interesting dynamic, an interesting relationship between those two that I haven't really seen. Certainly not up till then, up till nineteen ninety one. Preteen, interracial, like non sexualized friendship like that? Pretty yeah, between uh Intersex, too, you know, not just interracial. I thought it was good. Um, acting ability. Uh, it, I mean, there every, uh, maybe with the exception of, I don't know. I was going to say Ving Rhames maybe didn't have any cheesy parts, but he probably did, too. I felt like he was not the Marcellus Wallace quality in this one. That's, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, acting was on in parts but you know a little little weak in other parts but i i think i don't know i almost feel like this film is a lot lighter than like really light you know even popcorn didn't wasn't even that dark but 
That's fair. I mean, if you were to look at the lineup of 1991, I mean, as as I've said actually for the last couple podcasts, horror was not the big business. If you were to look at who's making the money, uh, I'm not sure either one of these made it in the top 100. Sequel horrors did that year. Um, but you're just not making that sort of money. So I think you do have to oftentimes sell things as more of a comedy horror. And I see where you're coming from, but I don't think it's like a comedy horror like Shaun of the Dead is. I still feel like both of these are rooted in horror more than they are in comedy. Look at the, look at the poster for the, the people under the stairs. That looks way scarier than the movie was. That's a really interesting point. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, when we get to personal connections and deeper meanings, I'm going to talk more about that. Um, in terms of uh, ensemble, I think uh, in acting ability, mommy and daddy, like you said, were a little over the top, but I still really enjoyed it. Um, and of course, diversity. What are we going to say about diversity in this ensemble? I'm sorry. I didn't hear that last part. Say about uh, diversity. diversity. Diversity is one of the strong points of this. Is it not? Uh, the people on the stairs? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah Absolutely specifically focuses on race relations and the mistreatment of minorities by white people who own land. I felt like it was, it was, it was doing something socially responsible in the way maybe popcorn wasn't. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's rank them then. What would you give in terms of the ensemble for popcorn? And what do you give people under the stairs? Let's see what I wrote. As you look it up, I'm going to let you know that I gave the popcorn ensemble three. Because I did really like the dynamic between like a group of a film club. I found them compelling. I actually gave that one a 3.5 because I wow. I really liked it, you know, just like the whole setting, including, you know, the people involved. And they really went all out putting together the horror you know what I mean? If I ever saw like, because, you know, I've taught at high schools multiple times, a, a club that was that into what they were doing and putting together such a show as the horror they put on, you got to give them credit. You know, that was that was a feat. What about the ensemble of people under the stairs? What are you giving that one? I believe I give that a 2.5. That's exactly what I gave it, a 2.5. Um, so as it stands, Popcorn is in the lead by 0.5. Let's go back and talk about, uh, fairly briefly, the surviving characters, because we've kind of talked about them a little bit, the surviving characters of Popcorn. Um, what did you think about their means of escape? Ultimately, like the climactic moment when they are able to escape, how did you feel about that? Uh, you know, I, I did think that was a little lacking. Um, just, I don't know, you're talking about just the mosquito, the swinging in on the mosquito yeah, I mean, we can go all the way back to Mark swinging in Indiana Jones style, right, down the zip line. Um, and then, of course, that uh, dislodges the mosquito, so it swoops down and it kills our uh, our villain, Toby, before he's able to kill Maggie. Um, why didn't that not work for you? Um, it just, I mean, it just seemed too easy. You know, it just, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it didn't work. It just... It didn't impress, you know. I do know. I'm with you. And I will go as far as to say it didn't work specifically because I loved the idea of an audience not knowing that an actual kill was about to happen in front of their eyes and that they're actually rooting for it. I loved that. It was actually oh. done a little bit more effective in um interview with a vampire. But this was great because everyone's rooting for an actual death not knowing it. But then you have a mosquito kill a second person. There was nothing new about this kill. The mosquito had already yeah. killed the teacher. It was redundant. It was not effective because of that. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe, maybe that, uh, maybe subconsciously that's why I, did, I didn't buy into it as much. 
Yeah, too repetitive. Uh, what about their determination to survive? Maggie and Mark specifically, let's consider them our, our final survivors. Uh, like, I, I mean, kind of, I, I touched on this with Maggie earlier, like just emotionally, you know, she didn't really seem emotionally affected, you know, she didn't mm -hmm. like, uh, uh, didn't seem like a struggle. Didn't seem like she was, uh, you know, like she had to fight. <laughs> she was just there. I'm kind of with you. She seems dead inside. And granted, we could talk about her family dynamics attributing to that. But she doesn't necessarily give up, but she is arguably too sympathetic of Toby's motives and plan. At one point, she says, you're absolutely right. I don't know if she's just trying to, like, woo him, but I felt like she saw him as a great villain that she would be worthy of dying at the hands of, almost, you know? I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe. I mean, I don't know. She suddenly remembered all this repressed stuff, you know? Um, maybe she's maybe been subconsciously you know mulling this over the whole time and that's why it's i, I don't know it, it doesn't seem believable to me but maybe that's why it's not a shock to her maybe she's already processed it in in some form really quick do you want to defend mark's acting abilities because we kind of talked about it in the ensemble a little bit but he's one of the final two and he really was not one of my favorites I, I didn't mind him. You know, I didn't think he was a great actor, but I didn't think he was that I don't know, I didn't think he was like that big a that big a character in the in the story. I mean I guess, you know, ultimately in the end he was, but That's fair, that's fair. Um iconic status of the two. Maybe focusing more on Maggie in the terms of like a Sydney from Scream or a Jody or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Laurie Strode from Halloween. These are these characters that transcend the movie themselves. They're almost as large a life as the bad guy. What did you think about Maggie in terms of her iconic status as a final girl? I mean, I I liked her. You know, I I didn't really have a lot of problems with with the way she, you know, with the way the actress per portrayed Maggie. Um, yeah, I. I... Granted, neither of us had heard of the movie prior to doing this, though, right? Right. Uh, so there's a problem there in terms of iconic status because she hasn't transcended. But I do love the idea of a film geek, a horror screenwriter girl being a final girl. Uh, but whether she's going to last in my memory in the same way some of these other ones will, I'm going to remember the movie as a whole. But I don't know if she's as potent a character as the movie was potent as a whole. No, I mean that's a good point. I, I would I wouldn't call her potent either. I, I just you know I think she's likable, but I agree. I I definitely enjoyed watching her. Um, surviving characters, the people under the stairs. Let's talk specifically about Fool, um, the one child from the basement that we really focus on, the long-haired monster guy who who ultimately like is able to escape. He's walking through the crowd as the money is pouring on people. Um, and then of course Alice. I would say those are our three surviving characters. Um, what did you think about the means of escape, that final climactic scene? Uh, I mean, I, that was fun. You know, that, you know, it was a lot more involved, you know, a lot more led up to it um, than Popcorn. Popcorn, it just seemed like, you know, just kind of, uh, it was resolved, you know, so really right. sudden. But the people under the stairs, you, you know, uh, I mean, it was built up and built up. And then, you you know, it's just suspenseful. You know, you, you think that, you know, something was going right for the heroes and then it would go, you know, it'd be completely turned around. 
True. Uh, specifically, one of the moments that kind of bothered me was when Alice jumps down from the ceiling and attacks Mommy when she's at the stairs, when ultimately the entire community is showing up to, you know, express their grievances. She could have bolted out the door after tackling Mommy from above, but instead she just kind of like freezes there, almost to the point where we talk about the determination to survive. I felt like maybe Alice isn't ready for the real world, um, despite That's school. True. I mean, that, Did that's you see that? Did you find that a little odd? Well, maybe not. I mean, if you've never even been outside and you look outside and there's a, you know, a crowd of how many hundreds of people, or at least three to 500 people maybe, like right that's out cool. there, you know, you might not be super anxious to run in, you know, into a just a, a crazy crowd when you've probably never even seen a crowd of 10 people before. So ironically, she thinks her, her uh, chance of survival is amongst mommy and daddy versus the real world where... Who does probably, she have? Is she going to go wasn't. live in the slums with, with uh, Fool? Where does she go? It wasn't a conscious thought, you know. It's just in, instinctually, you know. What do you think about Fool going back for her? Uh, he's a fool. <laughs> you know? He is a fool. As um, It's preluded in the opening sequence when we get to see the tarot card read um, on his birthday where he is, well, literally and figuratively, a fool. Um, I do feel like he's too young to really know the sort of risk that he was taking. I don't think he necessarily he's, he's at that stage where he, he thinks he's uh, Superman in a way. You know what I mean? He's not scared because he's been through so much as it is. Um, granted, this is especially emphasized when he nearly blows himself up at the end when taking out daddy. Right. He was right there. Yeah. Well, how that would he know how to set the explosives up? And I tell you what, one of my favorite moments, and I don't know how he ever would have thought of this, was the distractionary technique with the candle and putting coins in a candle. And as the candle actually gets uh, shrinks, melts, like the coins would drop yeah. and it distracted daddy. I love that. And what's interesting is he kind of got daddy back because daddy distracted him with that voice recorder of him and mommy in the room that ultimately was able to uh, surprise him with. Uh, but yeah, he's maybe uh, he's he's too smart for his own good, and he's also simultaneously uh, a little naive about some things. Um, iconic status in terms of these two. Let's talk specifically about uh, Alice and Fool. Uh, do you think they're more iconic than Maggie, or what do you think? Uh, Fool probably is. Yeah, I think as we noted, just the significance of a young female male uh, African American. Caucasian girl as your final figures, I feel like it's kind of iconic. I'm going to remember them. I think they sufficiently kicked ass both of them too. Um, the way that she's able to then traverse the walls, drop down on mommy, uh, climb up through the kitchen uh, oven, the, the vent ventilation system above that. I think Alice and Fool both kind of like did it up proper. Yeah. So what do you give popcorn? Surviving characters, what did you give them in terms of score? Uh, I actually gave it uh, a, a two. Oh, that's harsh. Uh, I gave I gave Maggie a three. Uh, Mark to a lesser degree. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, we were just talking about people under the stairs. I I gave my score for people under the stairs. Oh, popcorn. that's fine. Popcorn. I gave it three. I gave popcorn a three. I gave Survivor. I'm sorry. Uh, people under the stairs. Surviving characters. Two point five. And I almost feel like I should have bumped that up a little bit. I almost talked myself into a higher one, but I did initially put two point five for them. Yeah, I, I, the settings. Sorry, oh, go, can ahead. I go Can I go back to my score? I just wanted to explain a little bit. I like yeah. 
is, but I, the reason I put a two is because I don't, I, I wasn't scared for them um, at any point in the movie. Okay. You know? Yeah. No, I definitely see that. I mean, it was, it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the characters, but you know, I wasn't concerned for them and you know, this being a, a horror and Maggie could have easily died, especially if it was her dad after all. I feel like there was a good chance she was going to be toast, knowing that this movie has never had a sequel before. I felt like you're absolutely right. In terms of the urgency, Popcorn had more. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about the setting? Because I think both of them have phenomenal settings, if I'm honest with you. Uh, what did the mood of uh, the popcorn setting focus specifically on the movie theater? Um, that I, I love it, you know, I, I, I love the, the setting and just like the, how, how wild the crowd is and how everybody's rambunctious, but they're having a great time and like nobody's leaving, you know, even when the lights go out and nobody's leaving, they're still, and like everybody's <laughs> laughing at every bit of dialogue in the movies. And it just seems like, man, I wish I was there. You know, I wish I was in that crowd. No kidding. I think it's really interesting that this is a we're talking about this on the day that Joker is released. And most movie theaters have put a ban on cosplay for Joker. You cannot show up to see Joker in cosplay. And here in this theater, you have these amazing it's like Halloween, the way people are dressing up with these really unique costumes as well. The old timey theater called Dreamland is appropriate too, given the dream she has at the beginning. The fact that it seems to be in Southern California, from what I can tell, which is where movies are predominantly made felt like that set a really interesting mood uh just like a, a contextually appropriate uh setting more than anything that allowed uh, considerably variant shots too within a single location you had the projector room you had the concessions lobby the theater itself behind the the, the screen um and what i find significant in terms of meaning of the setting it's a place where you go to see life magnified right the theater while there's so much playing behind the scenes all of the real scary shit like the cinematic stuff is happening all everywhere, but the main theater, you know, I found that yeah. kind of cool. No. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And, and, you know, even these murders happening, you know, before their eyes, it's all, you know, to them, it's all part of the entertainment, you know, and they're nothing's going to stop their good time. And after the second movie, there's then a reggae, mini reggae concert up in there as well. <laughs> I mean, it did seem like it was a great time. That's I, like you put, I said, I wish I was there. I would love to be part of this as long as I didn't get murdered. It looks so fun. Um, yeah, sure. And the utilization of the space is amazing. You had a strong sense of the whole theater. I feel like we got to see pretty much every room that would have been in a theater. Yeah, uniqueness, uniqueness of the uh, setting. Um, I, I, you know, I give a points for that. You know, you don't see many movies that are 90%, you know, inside of a movie theater. I can only think of one around that time that came out that takes place a lot in a movie theater, and that's John Goodman's Matinee. I can't think of any other films that are, are so centrally hubbed within a movie theater. So I'd got to give that originality uniqueness points for that for sure. Um, I loved it. I did. Uh, I think it's going to be obvious what my score is for that one. But let's talk about the house and people under the stairs, uh, the mansion. And, of course, you can talk about the slums as well. What did you feel like the mood that was set in people under the stairs? Um, you know, it's like a Scooby-Doo cartoon, kind of, you know, where, you know, they're in, you know, you never know what's going to pop out of the walls. You know, you're being watched, you know, um, 
Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like that. I think that's a great analogy. I didn't actually think about how much it is like a Scooby-Doo. Um, but it, there, the, certainly the mansion is like stuck in the past. I found it creepy because she does have that 50s look and then the house itself seems like it's in a time capsule. Doesn't look like a 1991 house, you know? Um, and then you had the contrast between the slums versus the mansion. Um, the, you got the free but poor area of the slums where people are free and they can go around and do whatever they want. But then you have the rich people living in a prison, essentially. They're trapped within their affluence, which I thought was really neat in terms of the setting. Yeah, not to mention, uh, I, got, I got to give it credit for uh, I've never in like a live action scene uh, before seen uh, like the stairs that like collapse into a slide. I've seen that in cartoons so many times, but they had like a practical version of that. I thought that was, uh, I, that was I like great and used multiple times too. Yeah. Um, one other spot that I want to mention within the house that I found really kind of super creepy was the kitchen. It just felt so sterile to me. I don't know if this is, if they're so rich, why do they not have a nicer kitchen than it? The kitchen just felt, icky i don't know why but like a hospital kitchen or something i just it gave me the willies more than any other room the kitchen in that house gave me the willies yeah i, I agree it was there was something a little off about it um certainly we could argue that the utilization of the space is amazing we go through the walls we get to see the basement the dungeon part of the basement uh maybe not the attic do we we don't ever go into the attic i don't think um, but I feel like we saw multiple bedrooms on the second floor, certainly the living room, certainly the kitchen, the outdoors as well. Great utilization of space. Uniqueness. What did you think? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's up there. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's other movies with like haunted houses or haunted mansion, right. you know, just crazy houses, but, um, Something about the way that they uh, they manipulated, like they had just like so many trap doors and stuff like that, and they used that to like manipulate the setting. Uh, I give it, I give it a lot of points for originality. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, and, and you mentioned um, there's been a lot of haunted house movies, but I felt this was kind of like an inverse of a haunted house movie where. Um, you have a concept here with the people in the house being the ghouls more than the ghouls living within the walls, right? It's the survivors yeah. that are living within the walls, and you got the ghouls living in the actual uh, main oh, space. That's a good point. Yeah, and also, um, like, not really a haunted house, you know? There's nothing actually supernatural about the, the movie at all. Nothing supernatural about either of these movies, with one exception in popcorn. Can you think of it? Because this is actually something when I was doing some research, people give popcorn shit for because it doesn't make any sense at all, given all the other rules of the film. When the mom goes to the theater and then all of the letters on the marquee start popping off and then Possessor shows up. Is there any practical way that Toby could have done that? See, I thought at first when I saw that scene, I thought that he was just moving into the mom's dreams and because when I saw the note from her the next morning, I thought, oh, okay, the mom is going to get in on this. But uh, no, I mean, I guess she really went there and ended up trapped there. So I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. That that was a supernatural. Strange moment. I mean, in theory, he could have been on the other side popping off the letters and then had a projector there that went through the white that said possessor or something. Um, but yeah, that that's one of the flaws of popcorn. So what would you give popcorn setting? Oh, you know what I gave it? I gave it a four. Four. I gave it a four, too. I got to be honest. I gave people under the stairs a four as well. 
I gave that one a 3.5. All like right. It. It's close. It's close. Now we get into my two favorite categories. We're going to start with deeper meanings. The deeper meanings of popcorn. Metaphorically, allegorically, where did you go in your in your mind? Um, I didn't Okay, yeah. I didn't really grab a whole lot of a diff, of deeper meaning from it. Um, you know, with what's going on in Maggie's head, that's kind of where it would have, you know, that's where it all would have been, but like I said, it didn't really. She didn't really seem real emotional about it. She seemed kind of mm-hmm. unaffected, and so it didn't. I mean, if it wasn't, if it didn't seem that deep to her, then you know, I didn't. It didn't seem that deep to me because of that. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something that I had to look up. I didn't actually realize this on my own because I think I didn't like the name of it. I don't like the name popcorn. And then when I did a little bit of a research into it, it turns out that it was specifically named popcorn because it's pointing to the degradation of dynamism in the early 90s of horror lore. A lot of the titles that came out that year were like The Crush, very simplistic. They didn't have the same sort of cachet as a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Last House on the Left that were a little more um, specific and kind of had like an eeriness within the title itself, but it might have put off a masser audience. Popcorn was kind of um, like paradising um, the fact that it's, it's, actually trying to appeal to a grander audience and people are just going to the movies for the popcorn and not necessarily for the uh the lore the horror lore and this is even emphasized further this wasn't in the research but you could see this uh, mirrored through the gimmicks that they have to use to keep people there with the big mosquito the 3d vision um the smellorama and the electroshock seats you have to you're taking away from what the, the purity of cinema initially was and certainly in, in the case of horror you're getting more stock characters then and less depth to the story so i do think it was actually uh satirizing what was happening with horror um in the early 90s um but and then i'm not you know now, now that you bring it up i I think maybe they could have come up with a better title. I don't like the title. I don't like the title at all, but then it seems that it was conscious. But I, I think I wouldn't be excited to see a movie called Popcorn, honestly. Part of what drew me toward it is because it was alerted to me that this was a precursor of Scream, and I love Scream so much. I'm like, oh, crap. Got to see that. Um, and frankly, it is one of the one of the movies that did better that year in terms of horror. I yes. also would say in terms right. of deeper meanings. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying Scream is a brilliant title. You know, it's so like one syllable. You've... Yeah, Scream pulls off with Popcorn Doesn't, but they're trying to do the same sort of thing, it would seem. I heard recently that they were originally going to call it Scary Movie, and then they made Scary Movie the parody of Scream. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, You could argue that this is also suggesting that horror movies corrupt the minds of those that watch it. Uh, be it Maggie always seeing everything that happens to her as a viable screenplay scene and not being able to connect to people because she is seeing them more as stock hollowed characters uh, makes her harder for her to relate with Mark, as we talked about before. Um, And certainly it corrupts Toby. He's so obsessed with horror films himself that it gives him these ideas to actually take people out with. Um, Do you remember 91 at all? Can you think of any commentary on the times? Uh, commentary on what? On the times, like the year itself, or even the early '90s as a whole. I mean, I just remember, you know, I was in—I was nine years old. I would have been in like third or fourth grade, third grade probably. Um, I don't remember much outside of my little world. 
Fair enough. And if I hadn't done a little bit of research, I would not have probably either. But in 1991, the U.S. announces a major nuclear cutback. That certainly relates to the mosquito uh, aspect of it. You could also say that the Hubble telescope being launched for the first time in 1991 points to the widening scope and the trying to bring in a, a larger view, but then that negates you looking at the specificity and, and the, the humanness that you might otherwise, if you were looking around the world versus like looking into space for something bigger that might not have meaning versus something smaller that has grander meaning as the title, as we talked about, might be dealing with. Um, lasting impact though, how does this, how does this live on? Uh, how does what live on? Popcorn. I mean, we talked about Scream. Certainly lives on through Scream. You got the scary vo voiced phone calls, right? That's pretty much Scream. Rip that straight off. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I could see Popcorn having a sequel. You know, that, that story could go a lot of places. I would like uh, to see it remade in a contemporary context. With the way that yeah, they're doing things with uh, movie theaters now, with the rumble chairs and all that. Uh, I think it, it's it's rife for a remake. Yeah, but as far as influence, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm sure it's been influential to some writers and directors and all that, but I'd, I'd have to just pay attention from now on when I'm watching horror films, you know, made after that. But I think even beyond Scream 1, Scream 4 is really close to this one because that deals with a film class. Uh, that is trying to understand the same sort of things as film club is, and maybe not putting on a horathon in the same way, but they're cognizant of what's going on, similar to how these characters are. Personal connections? I know you mentioned you were nine at the time. Is there any other personal connections as you were watching it that made you like it more or less? Um, popcorn, not really. I do have a personal connection to people under the stairs. Okay, all right. Uh, if you want to, we can switch to that. I just wanted to mention, um, in terms of my personal connection to popcorn, um, as a kid, I didn't go to church on Sundays. I would go to the local movie theater. So I love this movie specifically because of where it was set. It's kind of like my religion. I mean, there was the local one, the Tivoli, which was like the cheap one. It was walkable. It was very much like this one. Granted, I did usually go to the Googleplex. So when we're talking about the dichotomy that's going on between the mass scale versus the mini, um, it, it spoke a lot to me. Um, plus, I related with Maggie. I did. As somebody who writes movies, I, I really related with her. But yeah, jump to the deeper meaning for you and personal connection to People Under the Stairs. Oh, <laughs> that's a smooth segue. No, I just uh, remember uh, there's this part where Fool, um, I think he was in the, it was right after he found Spencer's body and he hears a TV and it sounds like, you know, some kind of uh, like TV show or movie. But then he turns it around and it's like Gulf War uh, Scud missile footage. Like the missiles going into Baghdad. And I remember seeing that footage when, you know, at the time when my mom was in Iraq, you know, she went, uh, she got deployed to Iraq. And I just remember uh, seeing that stuff on TV and just you know, like not knowing what to think. But it was like wow. the same, you know, the night vision, green night vision. Probably the same, probably some of the same footage I, I'd seen on the news. At the time, Damn. but that was ninety-one. Was a couple of years later. I feel like that was more like eighty-nine or ninety. Okay, but you still have that visceral connection to. That's funny because I can't even remember that moment. I don't know how it escaped me. I guess I wasn't as uh, invested in what was going on in Iraq at that time as you obviously were. 
That's fascinating because the only thing I got in terms of personal connection, um, working at a video store, I would see that cover um, and it gave me a much more demonic supernatural feel that at the time I wasn't as into that and I didn't really want to get into that headspace. And I think it may have misrepresented it. And had I known what it actually was, I might have been more interested in watching it at the time. Totally misrepresented. Yeah. No, the poster's scary. What about the metaphor? What's the metaphor, the allegory, the deeper meanings um, as a whole for people under the stairs? Um, I mean, you know, unity, you know, helping, you know, helping, helping out people, helping out people, helping people out, um, you know, just putting, putting aside differences and working together for the better of the community, for the better of society. I mean, that's, yeah, a, that's you're right. One. Yeah, the di- disenfranchising of African-Americans uh, by specifically white bigoted people in power. Additionally, the corruption of youth um, and individual spirit, I feel like by religion. I really felt like this was critical of religion because um, what I saw was it was denying the future of Alice specifically because she was so indoctrinated and thinking she couldn't say no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Um, to the point where she was completely censored as a person. Um, uh, additionally, we have, uh, uh, I feel like it's a deeper meaning in that we have um, uh, minority representation in a very positive light, more often than not. Granted, Ving Rhames and Fool are both trying to steal from them. But in the end, I feel like the unity you mentioned is more important than that. Um, what about lasting impact? Do you think people under the stairs goes on mm, I mean, I don't, not necessarily i don't know it's it seems like it's pretty well wrapped up yeah you know i'm with you as far as uh you know themes and uh, deeper meanings I, I was thinking you know um there is that whole tarot card aspect the kid being named fool and everybody um you know telling him oh you know like look at the the tarot card you know this kids about or whoever's on the card i don't remember what character it was but he's about to walk off a cliff that's the fool that's the fool card yeah and and you know despite being warned about that you know he's still making you know he's still you know fools rush in you know he's still making rash decisions but he somehow uh you know comes out on top you know despite being constantly warned about that his whole life you know he's still making his own decisions and doing what he wants to do I like that interpretation. I think that goes back to when we were talking about how ultimately he's not smart enough to know what he's doing puts him in a vulnerable state. You know what I mean? He's very lucky that he is a fool because maybe if he was as conscious as Leroy, Ving Rhames' character, he would have met the same doom. But it is his kind of obliviousness that helps him as the fool make it through. I, don't know. I think Ving, or the Leroy character was an even bigger fool. Like as soon as he decided to go in the house, like I, th- I didn't... You know, he just starts smashing shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he was brutish. Yeah. Uh, Why do you think the dog went for Leroy instead of the kid? Um, because more menacing, just a bigger. I mean, what would have happened if if it if it had just been fool standing there and Leroy didn't pop up or like if he wasn't even in the room? Then I don't know. That's a good question. I would argue he doesn't attack the kid because there's always kids in the house, right? 
He knows not to attack the kids because they always they're kidnapping children, and with the exception of Alice, it's always been young men. So maybe he knows not to attack young men, but he's never seen a ginormous Ving Rhames before, you know. So <laughs> that makes sense. Um, okay, what, what what was the uh, point system that you gave him, or the point allotment rather? Point allotment. Are we start? We're we starting with popcorn. Yes, sir. I gave that a 2.5. Oh, wow. Um, only because I have like such that personal connection to it, I gave it a 3.5. I found a lot of meaning there, uh, and a lot of it, granted, was the personal connect. Um, but then when I did do the research into the title stuff, uh, I, I couldn't help but give it a 3.5. Uh, deeper meaning for people? Uh, it's also going to have to be a 2.5. I also gave that one a 3.5. I was digging deep. What can I say? Now we get to get to the money criteria, the fright factor. Um, certainly when you think horror, you want to be scared, right? You don't go into a horror movie not wanting to be scared. When we talk about popcorn, we get a kill count of seven. What do you think about seven deaths? Because something like The Blob has 27. Something like Misery has one. Um, what do you think about seven as a kill count number? I mean, it's pretty weak, you know, as far as horror movies go. But, you know, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was well done. You know, it was, uh, you know, the pacing of the, the murders was good. And like it always, uh, I, I don't know, kind of kept the story moving along uh, without just being focused on the killing, you know? Yeah. And I think I think it's actually a decent number because you actually care about the people that are getting killed in the way so many people in the blob you don't care about when there's 27 deaths. There's just sacrificial lambs you know here for the most part we get a sense of these characters before they die what about the quality of kills in popcorn what were your favorites which one didn't work for you uh you know that'll ding it on a little bit they weren't i mean there's i don't know was there any blood i guess when the dude got the mr what's his name mr davis he did a little blood blood. Blood. you got a really good point got impaled by the mosquito there was a little bit of blood there um, and her mom when she's killed by the possessor um in the movie version of the reality right there's blood on that sword that he sacrifices her with but you're right there is not a lot of blood in that i hadn't thought about that um so what was your favorite kill which one was your least favorite I, I don't know. I guess if if we're going for uh, like most horrific, <laughs> then when uh, her fa- uh, with Tina's face <laughs> getting ripped. <laughs> yes, when Tina starts kissing Toby, essentially in the mask of the teacher, and it just gets like sucked off. It's it's yeah. gruesome, but and that's actually what I put as my scariest scene. But I do feel like it's undercut that it wasn't really clear to me that she was strangled. They had a rope there. But it was like he was strangling himself, not her. I didn't really get that moment as much as I wanted to. Oh, I, see, I didn't even, I didn't even get that she was strangled. That's the sense that I got. Um, what did you think about Leon's death in the bathroom? Uh, with with the poison gas. Yeah, but before that, I found like kind of spooky incident where he pisses on Leon at the next to the stalls. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's those kind of moments that are like outside the box. That's almost so scary. Can you imagine if you were at a urinal and somebody just turned and started pissing on you? <laughs> that to me was pretty spooky too. 
Uh, but the smoke bomb itself, not so much. No. Can, can you explain to me if that smoke bomb killed Leon? Wasn't the smoke being put into the audience supposed to be deadly? But then nobody died. I was confused by That's that. That's what I was expecting to happen. Yeah. But I, I don't think get that. I don't think it did. Ha- I don't know. Yeah, I was expecting that to be a thing, like because it's you know the same part of the movie. They're showing the poison that killed the dude, and then they're showing the gas being pumped. Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't. I wasn't clear on that. Why they focused so much on that when there wasn't a payoff. Um, okay, let's move over to people under the stairs fright factor. We have only five deaths, and that's including mommy and daddy. So there's even less deaths in people under the stairs. Granted, you could say that some of the boys' deaths, random shotgun shots that daddy would just shoot into their uh, dungeon area, could have killed people that we weren't aware of. Um, but there wasn't a lot of death in this one. What about the quality of kills? Who, who had the best death? Well, I mean... And none of them were particularly outstanding. Mommies. Mommies is the best. When they tear up through the stairs, and then they essentially chase her to the kitchen where she's about to kill Alice when Alice acknowledges the fact, you're not actually my mom. She's like, well, fine, then you're going to go to hell. And then all the people under the stairs, like like wolves, surround her, and the insinuation is that she's getting eaten. Yeah. I guess, I, yeah. They didn't show any of it, though. They did not show enough of it. I'm with you there. But the rest of them were gunshot kills, and of course, Daddy getting blown up. Kind of boring gunshot kills um, as well, a whole. How, how did Spencer die? He like the fool said he like got scared to death because he turned white. I don't know if fool knows what he's talking about <laughs> in the case of Spencer's death. But yeah, we do see him outside the dungeon cage. Um, it looks like his hand was nibbled on a little bit. I'm assuming that uh, mommy might have poisoned him or something. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's unclear. It's unclear how Spencer died. That is a good point. Um, what about the scariest scene? Mm, I don't even know. Man. I wasn't scared at all. <laughs> I was a little freaked out. I was scared the most before I knew what the hell was going on in one of the opening scenes where the fork is on the ground. And it seems like the mommy's going to kill her in that moment. It's just like it felt like a very domestic terror, child abuse situation. That kind of got to me because I didn't know what the hell's going on. It's very uncomfortable, but scary. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. You got a strong constitution. Um, Okay. In terms of point allotment for Fright Factor for popcorn, what'd you give it? I gave that a two. I gave it 2.5. And in terms of Fright Factor for People Under the Stairs? Give that a 1.5. 1.5. Okay, to bust up the calculator here, um, in terms of your total pentagram allotment for popcorn, what would you give it? Uh, popcorn got a 17. So 19 for me, plus 17. Popcorn has a 36. What is your total point allotment for People Under the Stairs? 15.5. 15.5 plus 18.5 for me. We have a winner. Popcorn is the most iconic horror film by a margin of 2.5 points, which is interesting. Yes, give it up for Popcorn because I had people under the stairs. My personal one was they had won it by 0.5. So you love Popcorn enough to swing the vote. And I think that's fair. 
because popcorn was awesome and it really surprised me. Uh, so the bell has rung in terms of that. I want to thank Josh for being part of this podcast. Uh, Josh, do you want to um, big up anything? You want to tell people how to follow you on social media or tell them some projects you got cooking? Um, I, I don't really do the whole social media, but yeah, check out our uh, our album called They Would Know Was Us being released October 16th. October 16th, Compudacto's third album, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you'll be able to find it where... Um, all music is found, uh, Bandcamp, uh, iTunes, so keep an eye out for that. We'll certainly have uh, YouTube versions of it as well, but to keep this podcast alive and to keep Compudactyl cooking, we encourage you to purchase the album. That would be very lovely of us, uh, lovely of you, rather, and if you're interested in some unproduced music of ours that um, we're looking to get input on, on what should we put on uh, album four and five, you can go to Compudactyl.com. Um, unfinished. They're unfinished, but they got a lot of heart, and they're definitely they're germs. And Compudactyl is a uh, it's a new kind of band where we like to hear uh, what the audience has to say about the direction that we should take moving forward. Um, again, I want to thank Josh for being part of the fifth installment of the Icon Podcast Showdown or the Icon Showdown Podcast. And as they say in the business, the bell has rung. <laughs> <laughs>